Guys, if you have a Bible with you, please open up to Genesis chapter 39. If you do not have a Bible with you, we've provided uh, some on the seats right in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that home with you. Let that be our gift to you this morning. We want to put God's word in everyone's hands. So please, uh, we would love we would love to bless you with that. Now, everyone, I think, to some extent, wants to be successful in some way, shape, or form. Now, it doesn't always look the same for all of us, but I think everyone kind of hopes to be the best at something. It could be something big, like if you want to be like the greatest, whatever, athlete, basketball player of all time. Or maybe you're just like, dude, I make the best cup of coffee in the world. Whatever it is. Everybody wants to have something that they feel successful at, that they can brag about to some extent. But the problem with uh, most forms of success, the way we tend to see success, is that we have to admit that for most of us, it's pretty impossible, right? Like, there can, there can be only one when it comes to the, cup, the best cup of coffee in the world. Uh, I imagine, and, and, and so the idea, it becomes sort of elusive for a lot of us, the way we might think of it, success. Um, I imagine no athlete ever thinks, oh man, I want to ride the bench this season. Like, no one, no one worked all summer for that. Probably no instrumentalist sat around dreaming of the day when they could be the backup musician if the other guy broke their hand that night. Doubtful anyone got into acting just so they could be the background extra in the movie, right? Everyone has this. Now, we might fall along, fall into that place in life, and there's a, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. But let's just admit that none of us probably set out to do things that way. So, if being the best is what we're all aiming for, then we have to admit that most people will fail at this, right? So does that mean that for most of us, success is simply unattainable? I do not believe so. And I believe our passage for today illustrates that point very well. See, as we take a look at Joseph's story today, we find that what we, what we really need to do when we examine the scriptures is rethink the way we think of success. We have a general idea that the general world culture and world thinks of views success what I want to submit to you today is that, that we need to turn that idea on its head. That the Bible turns that idea on its head. And it shows us a, a better idea of what true success, true prosperity actually is. So, a little, bit, a little quick Cliff Notes version if, you're, uh, if you haven't been with us the last two weeks. The past two weeks we have looked at the story of Joseph, which is the last major story in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Joseph is the son of Jacob, the son who is the son of Isaac who is the son of Abraham. God promised Abraham he would bless him and make his family into great nations. Thus far, this future great nation has, has only done this so far in our story. They plotted to murder their brother and then sold him to slavery. And then, to follow it up, last week we looked at the, we looked at the story of Joseph's brother, Judah, who did some real sketchy stuff with a woman named Tamar who happened to be his daughter-in-law. By the way, if you left last week thinking, what's the deal with that story? 
That's kind of the author's point, okay? That means you got the, you understood what the Bible wanted you to understand with that. So when we last left off Joseph, things were not going well. And that's where we pick up today. Genesis chapter 39, starting in verse 1. We read, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. He lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From time to time, he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left him in everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with any thing except the food he ate. Okay. Now, keep in mind, the last thing we heard about Joseph is his brothers kidnapped him, were planning to murder him, and then the next thing they said is, well, there's no money in that, let's just sell him into slavery. From that to this beginning of the story, in all honesty, things are looking up pretty well for Joe. Like, I mean, it's not ideal, but comparative to being in a pit, not knowing if they're going to kill you or sell you, to being in charge of a well-to-do person's household, he's doing all right. He sold to a prominent man, Potiphar, who we are told is a captain of the Pharaoh's guard. And well, as the Bible says, Joseph prospered. He moved up the ranks rather quickly. So much that by the time we get to verse 4, Joseph is Potiphar's go-to guy. He is his, he is his right-hand man. It says he put him in charge of everything. Uh, basically, what he says at the end of uh, verse 6 is, all I care about, Joe, is what's for dinner, which means Potiphar is a man after my own heart. <laughs> the word here translated attendant is used to describe Joseph's relationship with Potiphar. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's also used to describe jo uh, Joshua's relationship with Moses and Elisha the prophet's relationship with Elijah the prophet. In other words, he was like, they were like two peas in a pod. They were Batman and Robin here, all right? Like they, they, he was his go-to person for everything. Now understand, Joseph would have probably not written his story this way. If Joseph could pick his life story, he probably wouldn't say, man, I can't wait till the day when I can be the head slave in some prominent Egyptian's household, okay? No one writes their story that way. But nonetheless, there he was. And verse tells us, and verse two tells us exactly why he was in this position and why he was prospering. The Lord was with Joseph. God's presence in his life was the source of his success in Egypt. This phrase has often appeared in uh, Jacob and Isaac's stories before this one. It's prominent in the story of the patriarchs in Genesis. We often find 
that God is with them. And usually God being with them is coupled with signs of success. It's a reminder that God has not forgot his promises to Joseph. And that it's that this situation that he finds himself in isn't contrary to his plans. It's actually part of them. Now keep in mind, Genesis is written for a people leaving 350 years of slavery in Egypt. So the irony of this is not lost on them. The idea is really simple. If God was with Joseph when he was in Egypt, he was with you too. Now, we find this word here, prosperity. Joseph prospered. He had success. Now, to be honest, this has become sort of a byword amongst the church. And a lot of that criticism is 100% valid. Often prosperity has become synonymous with uh, God's approval. So if I'm doing well in life, if I've got uh, money in the bank account, if I'm, uh, if things are going well for me, then I guess we, we often reason God must be pleased with me. That's not the case. That don't, don't get this idea twisted. Joseph prospered because God was with him. As a matter of fact, due to the fact that God was with him, Joseph was prospering no matter what his situation is. Those other things might be signs of prosperity, but they are not the things themselves. If God gives prosperity, by the way, it's something to rejoice in. So we don't want to lose sight of this and like and just think that oh, prosperity is just a bad thing. No. God's blessing Joseph in, in, a, in a foreign land where he's a slave. He says that's a good thing. It's a sign that God is with him. <clears throat> However, not all prosperity is proof of God's presence. So we would be wrong to think. So if you're reading the story up to this point, and you've never heard this story before, you go, ah, that's how I know God's with me. Success, right? Like maybe if my if my business does well, God's clearly with me. If my situation, if my car runs good this week, God's with me. I don't know. I clearly have not. I, my, I don't know all these things, but think of whatever that situation is. My relationship with uh, with people is going well. I we we start to think, well, God must be with me. And then what's the side? Uh, what's the other idea of that? Well, if when things are going good, God is with me. What do we think that when things take a turn? God must be angry at me. God must not be with me. Guys, that's false. And I, and I believe our story specifically shows us how that line of thinking is false. So we see Potiphar's, we are introduced to another character in our story in verse 7. Potiphar's wife. Verse 7 says, Now Joseph was well built and handsome. This is like the Bible's way of saying He's a total package. Looks, brains, Abad, Joseph's a handsome fellow. Verse 7, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. He said, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then do I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. 
Okay, so as I said, Joseph's a handsome fella. He's smart, he knows how to run the house, he's in charge, he's got good looks, he's in good shape, he's all these things, and so all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife starts to take notice of him. But what's interesting here is that Joseph, once not only he's got all that going for him, he really is full back. He's a classy guy, okay? Note the phrasing in verse 9. He says, how then could I do such a wicked thing? That word there, wicked, should stand out to us who were, with, uh, who were here last week because it stands in sharp contrast to the story of Judah. It's read that Judah and his sons did that which was wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And so what the author's trying to do here is contrast the wickedness of Judah's sons with the faithfulness of Joseph. Where they failed, he succeeds. He shows himself to be a classier guy than them. Now, not only that, there, Joseph could have gotten away with this the Bible doesn't say that there was anyone sitting around watching. He has the complete trust of Potiphar. There's absolutely no reason where he, why Joseph, Joseph should think he couldn't get away with this. Which, if you remember Judah's story last week, Judah thought, "Hey, if my if my brothers don't see me, it probably didn't. It's like it didn't happen." Joseph, on the other hand, explains it this way. He says, "Why should I do such a wicked thing and sin against God?" This puts us into a. This puts uh, our our deeds into perspective. It's not just about who sees you, because God sees. God knows. He says, even if I got away with this completely, I would be sinning against the Lord. Now, often we think of sin as merely offense, an offense against another person. The Bible sees it different. All sin is first and foremost against God. It is a rejection of his lordship over our lives and saying, I want to live life on my own terms, first and foremost. So what Joseph is saying here is, you're, basically he's faced with a dilemma, and it's, are you going to live life on God's terms, or are you going to live life on your terms? Are you going to indulge every desire you have? Judah, Judah held that perspective. Joseph doesn't. There's also a level of respectability about Joseph we see here. Frankly, this dude's got class. He recognizes that every good thing he enjoys is from God and doesn't want to disrespect God with that. See, that's how he sees it. God protected me all the way into the land of Egypt. He's brought me up into this place where I have, I have nothing to want for. I, how could I disobey that? How could I turn on God for who's done all this for me? Then we read in verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties. None of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. So Jer Joseph is working in the house in daytime, uh, which is a sign that he's able to move around freely in the house, right? There's no one watching over Joseph. It even tells us there were no witnesses in the house at this time. And so once again, Potiphar's wife comes up to him. She propositions him, and Joseph flees. Notice that the Bible doesn't say Joseph left. It says he ran, okay? This is the biblical perspective. Running is used in Genesis to emphasize a sense of immediacy. 
That's the response when it comes to temptation that the Bible presents. It repeatedly tells us, God repeatedly tells us in his word, that if you are in a compromising situation, to bolt out of them. Don't dilly-dally. Paul says it this way to his uh, his his right-hand man, Timothy, in 2 Timothy. He says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. He says, flee, run from sinful, from youthful passions. So when it comes to temptation, the Bible's advice is run from it. Don't play around with it. Don't indulge it. Just run. See, you have enough internal temptation in yourself. We all do. We have enough we have enough things tempting us inside our own heart that putting ourselves in an external situation is putting ourselves in a place to fail. That's the way the Bible puts it. So Joseph does the right thing. He runs out. He's out of the house in a flash so much that he leaves Potiphar's wife holding on to his coat. He wiggles away and leaves, I like to think of. What a guy. Guys, be like Joe. <laughs> so, obviously, we would expect for his immense self-control to pay off for him. Verse 13. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house, she called her household servants saying, look, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he, went, when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave that you brought, brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his coat behind me and ran out of the house. What is it with Joseph and coats, guys? <laughs> this is the second time in, in two chapters that the dude's coat like got him into big, big trouble, okay? And that's intentional by the author, by the way. The coat here, the cloak, or the out the garment. It, it means it's a it's it's similar to the fact that Joseph's coat. Uh, his coat of many colors was a way to show his father's favor. Most likely, this garment that he wore showed his favor in Potiphar's household as well. And so, just like uh, just as Joseph's brothers uh, brought the bloody garment that his father had brought to him to show him, to convince him of a lie that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, so Potiphar's wife presents this coat to her husband now and says, "Look." This scoundrel left his coat when I screamed. Potter's, Potiphar's wife is probably embarrassed and anger, angered by her humiliation. So she decides to twist this story. Notice, by the way, that she calls in the slaves first. She calls the other servants in and tells them the story before Potiphar even comes home. And there's this, these are most likely Egyptian slaves, by the way. So when she says, this Hebrew servant has came here to make sport of me. What it most likely is doing is it's make it's angering them. You know that foreigner who's your boss? That's the guy who tried to uh, try to do this. She's getting people on her side. This kind of charge, by the way, would have never held up in Israel's courts. See, Jewish law required multiple witnesses 
to convict someone of a crime. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So this is a phony trumped up charge. There are not witnesses, but all she has is a stolen coat. And so she wants to put all the stack the evidence in her favor. So she tells the servants before her husband gets home. She tries to get them on their side, that Hebrew foreigner who's in charge of you. And then when he comes in, she lays it all out before him. This is the story. Most likely the servants in the house probably functioned as false witnesses in this case. And then we see the result of it. Joseph in prison, verse 19. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. See, notice the text doesn't refer to Potiphar by name anymore. He's not saying Potiphar threw Joseph into prison. It says his master threw him into prison. This shows a, a, a change in the relational dynamic here. They're no longer Potiphar and Joe. They're the master and his servant, and his ungrateful servant. And so he throws him into a prison. Um, here we're back to where we started, by the way. See, Joseph had done nothing wrong. He was a faithful worker who saw success, just like chapter 3 saw, and just like chapter 37 saw Joseph stuck in a pit. Now, now in chapter 39, finds him stuck in a prison. As a matter of fact, the word for prison here literally means the round house. So it probably even felt like a pit. Here Joseph was. He finally thought things were looking up for him, and he's right back where he started. One thing uh, which has also confused some uh, scholars over the years is, why didn't Potiphar just have Joseph killed? I mean, he's a captain of the guard. He's got a charge against him. He could have had. He could have made it happen. Why is it that Joseph was left alive? Now, the Bible doesn't give us the specific details here, but we actually already know. The reason is because God ultimately still had plans for Joseph. Verse 20, it says, But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. There's that word again. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he made responsible for all that he had done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care, because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. See, our story ends where it begins. Uh, if you study structure and form in different Hebrew literature, uh, this forms what's called a chiasm. Basically, if you're thinking of it in terms of a structure, it basically goes A, B, C, C, B, A. And the story kind of begins right where it started. And so, this idea shows us that even in prison, Joseph is thriving, right? It doesn't take long, and somehow, Joseph becomes the, de like the default prison warden here. He's in charge of everything. So much that he says the same thing that, that um, it was said of, of Potiphar. He paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care and just trusted him with all of this. And this brings us to our big idea this week. So if you remember nothing else, what's the big thing I want to get? 
understand from this story. Well, here it is. Success is not based on your situation, but on him who is sovereign. Look, I don't pretend that Joseph wouldn't have preferred a different situation than where he was stuck in a prison. But his situation didn't determine everything. Here's the good news, guys. Neither does yours. See, Joseph's story presses us to look past the externals of life. It challenges us to think of prosperity and success in different ways. See, if you're you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. True success is not about the place you live, the things you have. It's about being fruitful where God has you. True success is about being fruitful where God has you. And guys, this gives me real hope. Because if I'm honest with you, I think we live in somewhat uncertain times. I don't know what 2021 is going to look like. Specifically, I don't know what 2021 is going to look like for Christians. We've all pretty much grown up in a time where being a Bible-believing Christian was generally allowed and accepted. It doesn't necessarily seem like that's what's in store for the near future. Now, as I say this, I want to be clear, guys. I don't, I'm not saying that the reason for that simply means uh, seems like that that the, the favor the church has probably enjoyed in America for uh, generations is coming to an end. I'm not saying that this is the result of a single election or anything like that, but rather it's the result of an ongoing trend towards postmodern secularism that has been going on long before this last election cycle. Look. I'm not a prophet, and this isn't some kind of doomsday prophecy here. It's just a simple fact. As more people seem to turn away from the Lord and his word, we should not expect society to still act as though people had that high regard for God's word. We should not accept expect that everyone is just going to accept biblical ethics. They just won't. However, Stories like this give me hope. God was still with Joseph in slavery. He was able to give him success even in prison. I'm not saying either of those things are coming our way, but even if they were, isn't it nice to know that none of that holds back God's good plans? Like, isn't it good to know that it really doesn't matter what the external situation for you looks like in the days, weeks, months, years ahead? That if you are God's, that you, he is still with you. Guys, come hell or high water. God is still God, and his plans for you are still good. He is still with his people. So knowing God's promises, how do you and I stay successful? Not on like a worldly, secular terms, but how do we stay successful on God's terms? Easy. Stay faithful to the call. God told Abraham, or sorry, God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. He reiterated that statement to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God has called us to work for his glory. And though the garden sprouted thorns, guys, there is still work to be done. One of the things I try to do in our sermons also is to not only explain the meaning of the immediate passage, 
but to connect it to the bigger theme of God's redemptive, redemptive plans in human history. Listen to what Jesus said when he sent out his disciples. Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now listen to this. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God was still with Joseph in slavery and in prison, and he is still with us. And it's his presence that makes the difference in our lives. So let me just give you this encouragement as I wrap up this sermon, guys. There's still work to be done. This is why what we do as a church is so important. We here proclaim the only message that can save people, the message of Jesus Christ. And that's why we are going to, that's why no matter what our situation, no matter what the externals look like in the days ahead, we know God is still with us and he is able to make us prosper and successful, fruitful in any situation. God is with you. If you trust in him and you pursue faithfulness, he will make you fruitful. Guys, for that I say all glory to God. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. For you are God who is with us. Lord, no matter what the situation for the days ahead might look like, your word is still true. You are still God Almighty. And your plans for us are still good. God, help us to make much of you. Not only when we gather on a Sunday morning, but as we go out into the world that so desperately needs to hear the message of salvation. God, strengthen us for the days ahead. Let us not look at success the way most men and women see it. Let us see success on your terms. God, give us comfort in the hard times. Assure us of the, our, your presence in our lives. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.